This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi, and welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the rule of law and the Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover some of those things for Slate.com. This past few weeks have been something approximating an absolute living nightmare of gun deaths in America. The white supremacist massacre of African Americans at a grocery store in Buffalo unspeakable carnage of murdered school children in Uvalde, Texas, and killing sprees in Iowa and Oklahoma, and just quite literally too many places to name. These atrocities are not met with the sobriety and seriousness and horror that they warrant. They are met with almost winking proffers of, quote, thoughts and prayers and pledges to armed librarians and doctors and truly deranged plans to close all school exits but one. It is too easy in this moment to feel these twinned responses of grief and helplessness, the doom loop that is both the onion headline about nothing to be done, about a problem that only happens in America, and this monstrous indifference of a political system that appears to have been designed so that nothing can be done. We wanted to mark that sentiment, but we also wanted to check it. And this week, I found myself interviewing Attorney General Eric Holder for our upcoming summer book season that will open in July. His new book is called Our Unfinished March, The Violent Past, An Imperiled Future of the Vote. It's about gerrymandering and voting rights. It's written with Sam Koppelman and published this past month by One World Press. The book is a direct refutation of that feeling of unresolved grief a roadmap to repairing the democratic systems that allow us to just languish in catastrophes that should be resolvable. So here is Eric Holder, Attorney General of the United States under President Barack Obama from 2009 to 2015, and the first African-American to hold that position on what needs to be done, and more urgently, what can, in fact, be done to stop a cycle of unbearable, senseless gun violence that is eating the country alive. The thing we have to first understand is that the gun problem is inextricably tied to our democracy problem. There are substantial majorities of the American people who are in favor of simple, common sense things like background checks like banning 
assault weapons, not to the same degree. 80, 90 percent of the American people want to uh, make sure that everybody goes to a background check. 60 percent of the people or so want to make sure that assault weapons don't litter our, our streets. And yet 60 percent is a very substantial number. You get 60 percent of the American people to agree on anything. That's a signal achievement in, in 2022. And yet the will of the people is not expressed in either our laws or our policies around guns. And that's because our system is designed in such a way, or our system has been exploited in such a way to prevent the will of the people from turning into the regulatory scheme, the laws that they would like to have in place. You have gerrymandered state legislatures that pass these laws and that allow for 18, 19 year olds to go and buy weapons of war. You have a House of Representatives that is beholden to, and people keep saying the gun lobby, we need to stop saying that, beholden to the gun industry, because that's what's really, the NRA is nothing more than a shill for the gun industry. They wouldn't exist without the contributions that they get, the money that they get from the gun industry. And that industry has made the determination that it doesn't matter what the American people want. They have an ability to exploit the political system in such a way that their commercial interests are more important than the lives of elderly black people in Buffalo, little angels in Uvalde, Texas. And we saw this 10 years ago when I saw those bodies of those or pictures of the bodies of those little angels in Newtown at Sandy Hook. What was determined to be more important by this industry was their commercial success. And they have co-conspirators, Confederates, collaborators who serve at the state and federal level who know that they can do things inconsistent with the desires of their constituents and suffer no electoral consequence. That's the problem. Attorney General Eric Holder on stopping the cycle of gun massacres. You will hear much more from him about his tremendous new book in an upcoming show this July. For this week's show, we wanted to spend some time buckling in together with you for what's to come at the U.S. Supreme Court. As of this first week of June, in this October 2021 term, the high court is facing its biggest backlog in over 70 years. According to our friend Greg Storr, the high court is due to issue 33 opinions. That's 53% of its expected total in all argued cases. And all of that is due in the days between now and July 1. The court is also juggling a leak investigation around the Dobbs opinion, a shadow docket that seems to never sleep, and roiling public discontent and internal strife. So that seems bad. To figure it all out, we're going to speak to our very favorite Supreme Court reporter, Mark Joseph Stern. He covers the courts and the law for Slate. And we're going to try to pick a path through everything that's gone wrong and what could possibly happen. 
Later on in the show, our Slate Plus listeners will have access to a conversation I just had with Noah Bookbinder of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington about judicial ethics and the increasing tension between the justices' aversion to oversight or binding ethical rules and the health of our democracy. If you are not a Slate Plus member, you can take a look at what's on offer at slate.com slash amicus plus. Membership will get you access to ad-free versions of all of Slate's podcasts, and you will have access to bonus and emergency segments of Amicus. Mark and I will be hopping into the studio as soon as the biggest cases start to come down this month, so don't miss out. Head to slate.com slash amicus plus, and thank you, as always, for supporting the work we do at the magazine. Okay, speaking of Mark Joseph Stern, he is here now to try to help make sense of a term that is not like any term I have ever seen. Mark covers the courts and the law for Slate. He is the fearless anchor of the above-mentioned Amicus Plus segments, and I think he's as bleary-eyed as I am, and it's only June! Mark, welcome to the big show. Thank you. So honored to finally graduate onto (laughs) the real program. It's great to be here. Thanks for bringing me on to talk about bad things as always. I can always rely on you for that, Dahlia. Um, Well, maybe it's all good. I mean, maybe my (laughs) sort of gloomy preface of wheels coming off and then just killing people with the wheels coming off is just wrong. But I wonder if... Maybe a good place, and and I can't really even think of a good place to start, but here's my framing question for you, Mark. Every year, you and I, we wrap the term up by gaming out, you know, the court's going to go big here, it's going to go small here, it's going to compromise on this. Maybe the majority, the conservative majority will overrule a thing, but they will say they're not overruling it, right? There's all these tricks to making it look uninsane. That seems to be over. All of those conversations we've had over the years was predicated on the idea of a court with a Justice Kennedy or a Justice Roberts at the center who cared about things like, oh, I don't know, public legitimacy, how things look, public acceptance, not doing everything at once. So I guess my question for you is, those days, at least in my eyes, seem to be over. Our friend uh, Leah Lippman from the Strict Scrutiny podcast, at the beginning of this term, talked about the hashtag YOLO, you only live once, wing of the current Supreme Court. That's Justices Sam Alito, Neil Gorsuch, Clarence Thomas. She made it sound like that was possibly a YOLO minority. But given that there are only hot button topics on this docket, and this court also seems ready to go big on guns and abortion and religion and dismantling the administrative state and the death penalty, isn't this month just better understood as the opening year of hashtag YOLO SCOTUS? I think that YOLO fever is infectious. I read that on WebMD. And even if Gorsuch and Thomas and Alito began as the YOLO trio, I think clearly Barrett and Kavanaugh and sometimes Roberts decided that they wanted to get in on some of that fun. And Alito's leaked opinion in Dobbs sort of responds to the criticism that you and I are making, where he says, we should not care 
really, about the public's reaction to our decisions, because we don't derive our legitimacy from the public or from public support. We derive it from the Constitution. And the only way that we can try to build up faith in the integrity of our institution is to apply that Constitution by our best lights and let the chips fall where they may, which is just a highfalutin way of saying YOLO. And I think that's very evident in the way that the court has flooded the zone with not just culture war stuff this term and next, but also these really important decisions that can fly under the radar, like Shin versus Ramirez, really gutting habeas relief for people who are actually innocent and due to be executed. And in some really terrible religion cases that we'll talk about soon, that flew partly under the radar, but are going to essentially use the free exercise clause to repeal the establishment clause and say that the very idea of separation of church and state is in fact unconstitutional. And I think when you've got at least three guys over in the corner having the time of their lives at the party, the temptation is to refill your cup and go over and join them. And it seems like that is what at least Barrett and Kavanaugh have done more often than not. And there's no need to appease a Justice Kennedy anymore. There's not even a need to get on the chief justice's good side because he is largely irrelevant on a 6-3 court. And we are seeing not just how a 6-3 court shifts each individual area of law, but how it empowers one particular faction of the bench to really push as hard as they can and bring some of their ideological bedfellows along for the ride and convince them that they shouldn't care about public reaction. They should just get this work done while they have a chance. And again, if the public hates it, if the public loves it, it doesn't matter because that's not their concern. And I guess that leads to a completely non-facetious question, which is maybe this is a good thing, Mark. I mean, maybe all the years of what you and I keep calling gaslighting of the John Roberts ethos of lie to us better, you know, do a better job of giving us a pretext that we can live with. All of those years of blind faith in this oracular court that doesn't do politics, maybe it's better that it's over. Is there any utility in just having the fiction and the pretense gone? And I say that, you know, with all due respect to Justice Stephen Breyer, who like swims in the soothing warm waters of those pretenses (laughs) and illusions. But like for the rest of the world, isn't it a good thing to just call it what it is, have it be this bare-knuckle, purely political, purely partisan fight, because at least now we can talk about it in its real terms? I think you and I have been talking about it in its real terms for a while, and what's happening is that more and more folks are looking at what's going on and agreeing with us, which to me is definitely a good thing. I love it when people <laughs> you like agree to be with right. me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it's, I think it's really bad for the country, of course. And I, I think that even just on an abstract level, I would like to believe that the Supreme Court is a fully legitimate institution that can do justice equally without fear or favor and is not fully corrupted by politics. I'd like to believe that in part because I'm not sure that there's a way out when the court becomes fully corrupted by partisanship. Like we have set up this system that is unique among all democracies in the world. Every other country thinks we're crazy for doing this, but we give this group of nine oracles lifetime tenure and unlimited power to do whatever they want. And frankly, I think the time to have this open and honest conversation about the court would have 
have been in like 2016 when voters knew that a seat was on the line and still Republican voters reported being much more activated about the Supreme Court than Democrats. And so, yes, it's great to finally have the gloves off and just acknowledge the court for what it is. But it's tragic that we're doing so against the backdrop of these horrific decisions that will truly inflict uh, death in the case of forcing women to birth uh, unwanted pregnancies, in the case of the gun decision that we'll soon talk about, and destruction of our democratic institutions, of voting rights, of all the stuff that made America a thriving multiracial democracy within our lifetime. So, you know, there's good and there's bad, but I would say that the bad probably outweighs the good. And just one last follow-on to that, and and this is, again, rank speculation, but do you have a cart horse answer to the question of all of these other pathologies that we've been talking about this year, whether it's unreasoned shadow docket orders or reliance on unreasoned shadow docket orders as though they are now reasoned or pot shots by the justices at the press, pot shots at each other, really, I think, acrimonious infighting. The leak itself, Mark, Clarence Thomas's recent kind of love song to the much better court under Chief Justice William Rehnquist. What's the cause and what's the effect here? In other words, I'm super curious if the justices are now of the view that, good, the gloves are off and now we're going to act like small children. Or if the acting like small children, just in whatever context, whether it's the partisan speeches or the, you know, fighting about wearing masks at oral arguments together, that's causing the kind of fiction to fall away. I think that question is very offensive to small children, uh, many of whom are (laughs) far better behaved than Sam Alito under any circumstances. Look, it's a great question because what we're seeing right now in terms of demeanor with the justices feels a little counterintuitive. People like Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito are about to get everything they want. They are winning so much. They are prevailing in in almost every single major case and a lot of minor ones. Clarence Thomas is writing blockbuster opinions for the first time in his career because he can finally hold together a five-justice block. And yet, Alito and Thomas have never sounded angrier. They go out and they do these wild partisan speeches, complaining about how much they dislike the current court, about how they feel that even the judiciary is adrift, despite the fact that the judiciary has moved toward them to the right so dramatically over the last few years. And so my theory of the case is essentially that they watched for decades while the court was center rights or moderates or occasionally handed down liberal rulings. And the country largely accepted those decisions. And the legal establishment accepted them. There was not a call generally to like expand the court. And the court's approval ratings remained high. They feel, Thomas Alito and those horsemen, they feel like, okay, they've now won fair and square. They're in the driver's seat. They're issuing all of the decisions that they think are right, that they believe are certainly no more radical than, you know, same-sex marriage or abortion. And suddenly their approval rating is plummeting. Multiple Democratic lawmakers are talking about expanding the court. 
There is a huge amount of unprecedented and brutal candor in the dissents, not just of Justice Sotomayor, but also Kagan and Breyer, who are finally calling it like it is. And I think they're deeply frustrated and annoyed that they don't get the kind of deference and praise that they believe they're owed. That now that they are in the driver's seat, people are realizing that the court is, in fact, a corrupted and partisan institution, more so now than in living memory. And I don't know if that directly answers your question, but I think that contributes to this dissension among the justices and this discord that we're hearing about constantly, because I think that they are really mad at the liberal dissenters for pointing out that what they're doing is in some ways illegitimate and incredibly dishonest. I think they're mad at Chief Justice Roberts for sometimes stepping up, like in that Clean Water Act shadow docket order, and signing on to Elena Kagan's dissent saying, this is BS. I think they feel that they are owed a lot more respect than they are getting, and that is making them very publicly angry. That's insanely interesting, and it also really does explain why Justice Thomas says, oh, I long for the days of good fellowship and good cheer when I was writing all these angry dissents, uh, (laughs) but I had no power. And it's really, really interesting that now that I have the power, I'm not writing lone angry dissents. Now I am the guy, you know, and I miss those days. It's not that he misses those days. He just doesn't quite know what to do with the fact that now that he's won, people don't like it. It goes to these kind of democracy, minoritarian conversations we've been having all year. I agree. Mark and I will be back with more after these messages. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, folks. I'm Preet Bharara, former U.S. attorney in Manhattan. On my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet, I break down legal topics shaping today's news. And I'm joined by thought leaders to explore topics at the intersection of power, policy, and justice. In our increasingly complex world, clarity can feel elusive. My goal is to empower listeners with knowledge and insight during these transformative times. So I hope you'll join me every Monday and Thursday on Stay Tuned. Search for and follow Stay Tuned on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay informed. Stay empowered. Stay tuned. So let's talk about some of the cases, because I think uh, my impression, correct me if you think I'm wrong, is that not a lot of people, I mean, obviously, listeners to this show know that there's a holy hell big deal gun case about to come down, and that the court in a weird way is now playing this, and I don't mean to laugh because it's freaking tragic, game of Frogger, where they have to come down with a decision in Bruin that doesn't coincide with a day of gun carnage. I'm literally not joking. I don't know how this decision can come down, massively expanding gun rights when we are in the middle of a just 
catastrophic amount of national attention to gun death. But can you, before we do that, just for folks who aren't paying the attention you are, lay out what's at stake in Bruin? So Bruin is a challenge to New York's very strict concealed carry law, which does not allow individuals to carry a concealed firearm in public unless they can show good cause, some heightened reason why they are fearful for their lives and need to carry a weapon with them. And I think it's very clear that there are five or six votes to strike down this law and require New York to grant a concealed carry permit to any gun owner who wants one. And in the process, they will be striking down laws in about seven or eight other states, including California, and affecting millions and millions of people who currently live in jurisdictions where you are not, in fact, generally allowed to carry a lethal weapon with you hidden in your purse or cloak and pull it out when you personally feel that you are in danger. And we shouldn't really be laughing about this. The the gun carnage in this country is sick and horrific, but there is a, a mildly amusing side note about how every time you might expect this decision to come down, there's another mass shooting. And I think that this goes to the YOLO court. They know that there's never going to be a good time to hand down this opinion. So I think they're just going to do it when they're ready and say to hell with it. And if that coincides with some horrific mass shooting that is furthered by their decision, meaning that they will facilitate even more gun violence through this ruling. They don't care. They feel like they're standing up for the poor little man on the New York City subway at midnight who feels threatened by the black person who's standing on the other side of the car. And that's the guy they empathize with. And the rest of us who are afraid of being shot to death, we are just not factored into their consideration. I want to come back to that empathy point, Mark, because it is such a connector to what we saw in the Dobbs League about who gets empathy at this court. It's something else we talk about a lot, you and I. But I do want to play that clip because I think for both of us, it was one of the most memorable clips from the oral argument in Bruin of Sam Alito making exactly the point that you're making, which is who is the real loser in New York. And it's not (laughs) anybody other than the office worker who wants to have a gun on the subway and can't while all these lawless murderers and thugs around him have weapons. There are a lot of armed people uh, on the streets of New York and in the subways late at night right now, aren't there? I don't know that there are a lot of armed people. No? How I mean, many, there are people, uh, how there many are people illegal, with illegal guns, if yeah, that's, that's what, what I'm talking about. Yeah. How many illegal guns were seized by the, by the New York Police Department uh, last year? Do you, have, do you have any idea? I don't have that number, but I'm sure there's a, it's a substantial number. But the people, all, all these people with illegal guns, they're on the subway. They're walking know. around the streets. But the ordinary, hardworking, law-abiding people I mentioned, no, they can't be armed. And Mark, I guess my question to you is, this feels like it's very much of a piece where you started today about even when you're winning, you're still the victim under this construction of the facts. Yes, people like Alito, justices and and members of the conservative legal movement 
came up in their careers with this victimhood complex. They feel perpetually aggrieved. They feel like the entire legal profession in much of the country is against them, even though they know the one true way to interpret the Constitution. And here, Alito sounds genuinely outraged on behalf of this imaginary person who, thanks to twisted liberal attacks on the Second Amendment, is not able to defend himself in the dangerous and hellish Mad Max-style dystopia that he appears to imagine the the New York City subway to be. Um, And, you know, we could go through almost every case and identify who gets empathy and who doesn't. But I just think it's interesting that progressive jurists do sometimes acknowledge that empathy can play a role. Famously, Justice Sotomayor, and then had to walk it back to get confirmed. But, you know, there is a, a strain of progressive jurisprudence that says that people like criminal defendants, the underprivileged, the less powerful, that they actually do deserve some measure of empathy and consideration about the facts of their lives, their circumstances, when they are going up against often a a giant corporation or prosecutors who have way more power than they do. Whereas the conservative justices have long said that empathy is illegitimate in judging, that there should be absolutely no consideration of individuals' circumstances which might draw some sympathy. And yet, here we have the conservatives very openly empathizing with the guy on the subway facing a mugger or whatever, and just refusing to extend any empathy to the rest of us who are afraid that someone with a concealed gun is going to murder us in public. And so it's not just that they have this obvious empathy, it's that they pretend that empathy plays no role even as it so clearly drives their analysis of the constitutional issues at hand. And a coda to this is a point you and I made in print last week. But I think it's worth saying that protesters outside some of the justices' homes after Dobbs were immediately met with bipartisan congressional efforts to protect the justices. They get protection from imagined or real assailants. The idea that nobody else has that protection doesn't seem to factor. And one of the things that was really hard to listen to in Bruin was this kind of waka waka comedy routine about what kinds of places are sensitive places where you might, in fact, allow to re- regulate guns. And it's like, ha ha ha, the Columbia University campus, the NYU campus, ha ha ha, the Times Square on, you know, New Year's Eve. This sense as though, A, The justices have already determined for themselves that a sensitive place where you can regulate gun possession is at the Supreme Court. And then the idea that we can just spitball based on our own fleeting sense of whether Times Square at New Year's Eve is or is not a sensitive space that should be regulated. I mean, it's not just empathy. It's just absolute rank feelings, impressions, hunches, eh opposite of justice. And how lucky for them that they do not face the lethal consequences of their own rulings, that they will not be the ones on the New York City subway when some over-eager concealed carry permit holder whips out his gun and starts shooting wildly because he thinks that the people who are doing the dances on the poles are actually trying to rob him. The justices do not have to deal with this stuff. And so for them, it's all a parlor game. And that is very sickening to me because it's our real lives and they just don't appear to care at all. 
I want to turn to the religion cases, Mark, because you've talked so often in our Amicus Plus segments about this paradox, the same paradox that you you, you flicked at where Justice Alito says in Dobbs, "Eh, if you don't like it, you can do something about it. And, you know, obviously injecting religion into the public sphere is something that the court is very invested in. And Carson, one of the cases we're going to talk about just now, is a natural conclusion of years of trying to have public funding go toward religious schools. It's another one of those places where there's such a paradox here, because this is not a massively popular public opinion. No, I don't think that most Americans would say that they would like their tax dollars to subsidize the exercise of religion that they do not subscribe to. And yet that is exactly what the court's going to do in this case, Carson v. Macon. So just to back up for those who aren't keyed into this one, Maine has a lot of rural areas where there aren't public schools and the the state will pay for kids to go to private schools in those areas. And it has one rule, which is no religious schools. We're not going to pay to send kids to overtly religious schools to get religious education because that would be subsidizing the exercise of religion, which is not only wrong in our view, but we think violates the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, which we had thought for many years uh, required the separate of church and state. And in this case, the Supreme Court is going to say, no, 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 quite the contrary. The First Amendment's free exercise clause requires the state of Maine to fund these overtly religious schools and to fund the indoctrination of these children. And I don't use that word lightly. If you look at the schools that are going to benefit, they are like evangelical indoctrination academies, anti-LGBTQ. They expel gay and trans students. They expel students who are children of gay parents. They discriminate wildly against LGBTQ teachers. They force students to continually pledge their allegiance to Christ and all of his works. This is the pure exercise of religion, the kind of thing that James Madison wrote the First Amendment to prevent. If you read his writings, it's pretty clear. And yet the court's going to say that, in fact, the First Amendment requires public funding of these schools by by declaring that simple government neutrality toward religion, that just having the government say, we want to be neutral toward religion so that we are not respecting any kind of establishment here, that that somehow violates the free exercise clause. And that in reality, the government is obligated by the constitution to grant special favors and funding to religious schools and institutions. And can I play you a minute of Justice Gorsuch uh, talking about watered-down religions in oral arguments in Carson v. Macon. I I do want to understand um, this theory. So uh, a a private entity can provide a a public education in Maine. Yes. A private entity in California can. A private, yes. It just can't have too much religious entanglement. It's not that it has too much religious entanglement. Well, some might be okay, but... Some, some might not. You, well, I believe it was your answer to the Chief Justice. The ones that would not be okay are the ones that are instilling religious beliefs in children. Okay. How does that not discriminate against minority religious viewpoints um, or ones that are unorthodox? Uh, because some in favor of religions that are more watered down, some might say, or more, more majoritarian, more comfortable with uh, what, a, what a, a bureaucrat in Bangor might say. 
What's incredible to me is that if some civil rights commissioner in a state said what Gorsuch just said there, the Supreme Court would accuse him of anti-religious animus. Gorsuch is essentially saying here that the so-called watered-down religions, that the more liberal sects, uh, that they sort of don't count, (laughs) and that the religions that need special protection from the Supreme Court are the hardcore evangelical uh, religions. They're certainly not talking about Islam or Judaism here. Let's be real. And I think it's a, a really clear illustration of how this court exhibits such favoritism toward extremely devout religious people and institutions and really spurns secularism as some kind of perversion of the American constitutional order. And Gorsuch in that quote almost it feels like a Freudian slip or something to me. Uh, for him to say, and this was in the context of basically a Unitarian Universalist school that, that the justices were considering, for him to say that's watered down just shows that what he and his conservative colleagues really want to do is give hardcore religious institutions a, a whole lot of benefits and a whole lot of say over public life in America, more influence in the public sphere, because they are the true religions. They are the people who were really meant to be protected by the free exercise clause, and everybody else can just go get lost with their ridiculous secularism nonsense. And let's talk for just a quick minute, Mark, about Kennedy, the other religion case. And folks will remember this because it was argued fairly recently, but this is a coach who wants to have an overtly sectarian prayer following football games. High school students may or may not feel as though it's in their interest to pray with him. And this is another example, Mark, of a case where the justices, at least at oral argument, seem to have boundless empathy and solicitude for his interests, for the ways in which he is being silenced or he is being prohibited from exercising his speech and religious liberty interests. And pretty much just blank out the interests of the students and their parents who may not want to be involved in what is effectively a religious service happening on school time. And we have on the record here the voices of school children who said that they felt coerced into joining this prayer circle, into participating in Christian prayer with which they do not agree because otherwise they might lose time on the field, they might face retaliation from officials. One student who actually did refuse to pray said that he faced retaliation, that he was excluded, and that is the exact kind of constitutional harm that the Supreme Court has long said is prohibited under the Establishment clause, coercing people, especially children, into practicing a religion that they do not share. And yet again, this brings us back to our theme, the court is just using the free exercise clause to repeal the establishment clause. And so those kids and their interests are wiped from the analysis, and the court will only focus on poor Coach Kennedy, who just wanted to practice his religion in peace, not really, at the 50-yard line in public and give him the rights to really start bringing Christian prayer back into public school in a way that has not happened since the Supreme Court first outlawed prayer in public school in the 1960s. Let's take a brief break to hear from one of our wonderful sponsors on this show. I'm going to keep just 
doubling down on this same theme about solicitude and empathy for me and not for thee as we turn to Dobbs. And we've done so many shows um, on abortion and on Dobbs. So we don't need, I think, to go into the facts of the Mississippi 15-week abortion ban, the leaked draft that seems to suggest a, a huge big swing overturning Casey and Roe. But I guess I do want to ask you a version of the YOLO question that we opened with, which is, do you have any reason to believe, Mark, that this draft is going to get substantially softened between now and its release? In other words, I think of the Dobbs draft as a natural experiment in whether public outrage, public uh, sense that Again, to pull on the other theme, there are whole classes of people who are invisible in the Dobbs opinion, including all the pain and suffering of forced pregnancy. Does Justice Alito go back and pull from this very, very, I think, sarcastic and caustic draft some of the language that suggests that he just doesn't care if women suffer? So my guess is that Kavanaugh especially will require Alito to tone down some of his rhetoric as the cost of his vote. I don't think that anything substantive will change. Maybe that passage that seems to strongly suggest that the gay rights decisions were wrongly decided will either disappear or be somewhat massaged. But my guess is that the clear scorn for abortion and abortion rights advocacy is going to rile up Kavanaugh because we know during oral arguments, Kavanaugh was already doing backlash management. He was saying, we're just going to be neutral about abortion. We're not going to be pro-life or pro-choice. We're going to maintain scrupulous neutrality on this issue and let the people decide. And Alito's majority opinion right now is not neutral at all. It drips with disgust toward abortion and toward people who get abortions, people who provide abortions. And I think that will really bother Kavanaugh. Now, the fact that this ruling will condemn women to die by forcing them to carry in birth high-risk pregnancies, I don't think that bothers Kavanaugh at all. He doesn't care about them, but he doesn't want the public to think that he is an anti-abortion zealot and that that's what drove his vote in this case. So I do think that we may see a, a somewhat more, I don't know, PG-rated version when this draft comes out, but almost all, if not all, the substance will still be there. And does that lead you to have a sense of where John Roberts lands in this? Does he end up voting with the three liberals, knowing as he did, I mean, we've seen this before in abortion cases, that on the merits, he 100% agrees, both with what Mississippi tried to do and with what Sam Alito wrote? Or does John Roberts just try to... You know, it's interesting. It's interesting. All these conversations we've had over these years about how John Roberts manages the court and the appearance of legitimacy. Now, I guess he has to manage the appearance of legitimacy of John Roberts. Where, where does he land now? So we know that as of the leak, he was trying to persuade one or two conservatives to sign a, quote, moderate opinion that would uphold a 15-week ban and maybe even earlier bans without formally overturning Roe and Casey. Query whether that would actually be better than what Alito wants to do or whether it would just trick people into thinking that the right to abortion still exists in some capacity and mute the political backlash. Uh, I think that Roberts is thinking about 
about that. And it may be driving his desire to carve out a kind of phony middle ground. I think, though, that now with this leak, there is a real chance that Roberts just signs on to a toned down Alito draft and that Roberts views the leak as an attack on the court's legitimacy and doesn't want to reward the leaker if he thinks it was a liberal by setting himself apart from the other conservatives. And uh, I think also he does not want to be known as the chief who lost control of his court. He wants to look like he's in the driver's seat. And, you know, Chief Justice Warren Burger, he did not agree with Roe at all, but he signed on to it because he wanted it to look like it was still his court. I think there's a chance that the chief does this. And even though he thinks that the court is making a huge political mistake at a bare minimum and and just resigns himself to the fact that even if he's no longer in control, he could still occasionally create the illusion of control. We've done show after show, Mark, about the court's years-long efforts to kneecap the regulatory state. The the case in which uh, probably is most salient this year is the court now poised to decide whether to restrict the EPA's power to tackle climate change. What's the thought, Mark, on, again, whether this is the kind of thing that, you know, we've done a lot of work (laughs) this term at this court on hobbling the CDC, on hobbling other regulatory agencies. Is there any reason to think that even the YOLO court doesn't need to just jump in on saying we're not going to let the EPA deal with a potentially cataclysmic climate disaster? So the EPA case is actually, I think, a weird case and a poor vehicle for what a majority clearly wants to do. Just briefly, there's not actually a carbon rule in place right now that's being challenged that the Biden administration wants to keep. There's no rule. It's a very bizarre set of facts and maybe not the cleanest vehicle for the court to take another big chunk out of agency deference and the entire administrative state. Plus, these cases will just keep rolling in because every time the Biden administration does anything, when Joe Biden farts in the Oval Office, red state attorneys general run to a Trump judge and demand a nationwide injunction and they get it. And at least half the time, they convince the Fifth Circuit to uphold it. And so I think all these cases are, are on a rocket docket to SCOTUS. And if this one is too messy for them, they can just do a little bit of damage and then wait until next term to start striking down these laws as a violation of the non-delegation doctrine or the major questions doctrine or all this other garbage that has no basis in the Constitution or in law, but that Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch really like. We have to go back to the shadow docket for a second, because that's where we started the term. And we started the term in a very, in some sense, strange place, which is a massive public awareness that something was hinky about the shadow docket. SB8 had just come down, remain in Mexico, Biden uh, uh, eviction moratorium. All of this was happening on the shadow docket as the term opened, the result of which was instead of the court saying, hmm, self, I'm taking a long look in the mirror, and I think maybe we shouldn't act completely bananas. And instead of that happening, we had the court doubling down. We had Amy Coney Barrett hectoring us about read the opinion where there was no opinion on the shadow docket. And Sam Alito famously going after Adam Serwer in a speech at Notre Dame. Let's have a listen. Here is a line from a recent piece talking about our refusal to grant an injunction in the Texas abortion case. Quote, 
The conservative majority on the Supreme Court was so eager to nullify Roe v. Wade that it didn't even wait for oral argument, end quote. Now, put aside the false and inflammatory claim that we nullified Roe versus Wade, we did no such thing, and we said that expressly in our order. I quote, the applicants now before us have raised serious questions regarding the constitutionality of the Texas law at issue. This order is not based on any conclusion about the constitutionality of Texas's law. So the statement is flatly wrong, and the suggestion that we should have held oral argument is ridiculous. So again, Mark, I guess this is part of this animating theme of zero self-awareness SCOTUS, <laughs> zero ability to say, we could do this in three years and people might not be protesting in our driveways, but let's just get it done now. And I wonder if part of this lack of self-awareness is because it's just too easy to blame the press, or if there's something more pernicious that really does go to the heart of where you started talking, which is the court actually doesn't care about the institution of the court. I think that for the most part, a majority does not much care. They know they've got the power. Again, they have watched past courts wield that power in a way that they thought was disgusting and illegitimate, and nothing really happened. The court still stood. People still abide by its rulings. So I don't think that they feel an obligation to adhere to any particularly rigorous standards here, which is something that Elena Kagan has pointed out and castigated, sometimes joined by the chief, again, where she says that the processes that we have in place full briefing, oral arguments, all that stuff legitimates the court's authority. That's her word, not mine. And without it, the implication is the court's authority becomes illegitimate. The response from the five ultra conservatives has been, we don't care because we can still do it and we can get away with it. And I really do believe, call me a conspiracy theorist, I really believe that they like these midnight orders that don't get nearly as much attention because of when they come out, that don't get nearly as much coverage, that sometimes take a case in a really bizarre procedural posture that's hard to understand because it takes the heat off of them. It takes the spotlight off of them and they can get this work done. They can accomplish these years long goals of the movement in a single paragraph order that very few people read or understand. Mark, before I say goodbye, can I ask you one goofy question and one serious question? By all means. The goofy question is, we're in the midst of an unprecedented investigation of this Dobbs leak and the clerks. Court officials are asking clerks to turn over their private phone data and sign affidavits about whether they're being truthful. I'm guessing that the justices and their spouses are not similarly being investigated, correct? (laughs) Yes, according to the fabulous reporting from Joan Biskupic on this, it is only the clerks so far and potentially later court staff who are being asked to turn over their private information and data to Colonel Curley, who is in charge of this investigation, despite having literally no experience ever investigating anyone. And I think it's pretty notable that Ginny Thomas, who is currently being investigated by the January 6th committee, is not subject, as far as we know, to this probe. And if I were a clerk right now, my answer would be absolutely not. Hell no, you don't get my phone and you can talk to my lawyer. In part because until Ginny is sitting in that interrogation room or whatever they've got going on at the court, we all know this investigation is ridiculous. 
So I, I do want to ask my serious question and then we can say goodbye. You and I are somewhat, I almost want to say hysterically because I can hear the muffled laughter in both of our voices, but like under the laughter is tears of sorrow for this institution that you and I both revere. And we're watching something fall apart, it seems to me, in real time. And I guess I want to ask you, for listeners who are not watching every zig and zag, every jot of every one of the 33 cases that are going to come down, folks who were surprised by Dobbs because they didn't think it could happen. What is the thing that you would advise listeners to this show this week to really pay attention to? I'm going to guess that having said that not enough people know there's a major gun case on the docket, there's other stuff on the docket to watch for because in the blur of the last couple of weeks, some very consequential things are going to happen and we're going to miss them. What are those things? So I'm just going to say one case overall else, which is the Coach Kennedy case, Kennedy versus Bremerton, because this is a case where one party is lying and one party is telling the truth. And the party that's lying claims that this coach was fired for quiet private prayer. And none of that is true. He wasn't fired and his prayer wasn't quiet or private. It was very public on the 50 yard line at a school game while he was conducting his official duties. And There are photos of it. It's like should not be contested. And yet the Supreme Court is going to reject the reality of what happened and adopt this fantasy in order to reach the ruling that they want. And I just want people to look at the facts of this case, read our article about it, go read some briefs, look at the photo evidence, and then read what the court says happened. And just hold that in mind moving forward. Remember that this court is willing to embrace outright lies, that this court is willing to build new doctrine on objective falsehoods just to reach a result that they like that furthers their own agenda. And then the next time you're tempted to believe in the integrity and principles of the majority, remember that, keep that in mind. Because while this case has not gotten a ton of attention, I think it may be this term's single best illustration of how the majority believes it is entitled to its own facts, and that it can simply warp and manipulate reality when it doesn't meet the majority's needs in order to drag the law as far rightward as possible in as short a time as possible. So so that's a sobering place to land, Mark. We started with hashtag you only live once, and we're ending with hashtag alternative facts. And those two things, I think, together maybe set us up for next term, whatever happens in the next few weeks, when we have affirmative action, when we have more discrimination against LGBTQ Americans, and I'm going to venture some very worrisome voting rights cases. All that is coming, and you are saying, and I think I don't disagree with you, facts may not be what you think they are going into that term. Facts just do not matter to this court. And uh, as flawed as this institution may be and has been in the past, that has not really been the case until now. And that feels like a leap into the abyss that bears at least noting, if not bemoaning, as we crash into this final catastrophic couple of weeks in the term. Mark Joseph Stern covers the Supreme Courts, the courts, 
the law and democracy generally and so many other things so ably and has been my absolutely indispensable partner in crime on the Amicus Plus segments. Uh, We're going to have a lot more of me and Mark talking to end the term. And I just want to thank you, Mark, because I always learn from you, even when what I'm learning makes me sadder than I already (laughs) thought I was. So thank you. Uh, you're welcome. And maybe one day we'll find at least one great thing to talk about. I just know it won't have anything to do with SCOTUS. I mean, the great thing was you get to say, I told you so. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so very much for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch at amicus at slate.com, or you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio, and Ben Richmond is Senior Director of Operations for Podcasts at Slate. We'll be back with you with another episode of Amicus next Saturday. Until then, take good care of yourselves. Listener.